Chapters 9 and 10 of Essays on Work and Culture. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Greg Giordano. Essays on Work and Culture by Hamilton Wright Maybe. Chapter 9. Fellowship. The comradeship of work is an element which is rarely taken into account, but which is of great importance from many points of view. Men who work together have not only the same interests, but are likely to develop a kinship of thought and feeling. Their association extends beyond working hours, and includes their higher and wider interests. There seems to be something in the putting forth of effort upon the same material or for the same end which binds men together with ties which are not wholly the result of proximity those who have given no thought to the educational side of work and who are ignorant that it has such a side are nevertheless brought within the unifying influence of a process which using mainly the hands and the feet is insensibly training the whole nature. There is a deeper unity in the work of the world than has been clearly understood as yet. There is that vital unity which binds together those who are not only engaged in a common task, but who are also involved in a common spiritual process. The very necessity of work carries with it the implication of an incomplete world and an imperfectly developed society. The earth was not finished when it was made ready for the appearance of man. It will not be finished until man has done with it. In the making of the world, man has his part. Here, as elsewhere, he meets God and cooperates with him, the divine and the human combining to perfect the process of unfolding and evolution. Until the work of men has developed it, the earth is raw material. It is full of power but that power is not conserved and directed. It is full of the potentialities of fertility, but there are no harvests. All manner of possibilities, both of material and spiritual uses, are in it. Food, ore, force, beauty. But these possibilities must await the skill of man before they can be turned into wealth, comfort, art, civilization. God gives the earth as a mine, and man must work it as a field and man must till it as a reservoir of force and man must make connection with it as the rough material out of which order symmetry utility beauty culture may be wrought and men must unfold these higher uses by intelligence skill toil and character at some time every particle of the civilized world has been like the old frontier on this continent, and men have reclaimed either the desert or the wilderness by their heroic sacrifices and labors. It is a misuse of language, therefore, to say that the world is made. It is not made, because it is being made century by century through the toil of successive generations. Now, this creative process in which God and men unite is what we call work. It is not a process introduced among men as an afterthought, or as a form of punishment, 
it was involved in the initial creative act and it is part of the complete creative act the conception of a process of development carries with it the idea not of a finished but of an unfinished world it interprets history not as a record of persons and events separate from the stage upon which they appear like actors on the boards but as the story of the influence of an unfinished world upon an undeveloped race and of the marvellous unfolding through which the hidden powers and qualities of the material and the worker are brought into play work becomes therefore not only a continuation of the divine activity in the world but a process inwrought in the very constitution of that world growth is the divinest element in life and work is one of the chief factors in growth the earth is therefore in its full unfolding in its final form the joint product of the love and power of god and of the toil and sacrifice of men the creative purpose is not accomplished in a single act it is being wrought out through a long progression of acts and in this continuous process god and men are brought together in a way which makes the labor of the hand the work also of the spirit if one reflects on all that this intimate cooperation of the divine and the human in the fields the factories and the shops means the nobility of work and its possibilities of spiritual education become impressively clear in this fellowship men are trained in ways of which they are insensible spiritual results are accomplished within them of which they are unconscious the infinite is nowhere more beneficently present than in the strain and anguish of toil and the necessity of putting forth one's strength in some form of activity is not a hardship but a divine opportunity to well-conditioned men work is a joy under normal conditions for healthful men it is always a joy the spiritual meaning behind the hard face which toil wears makes itself dimly understood at times and men sing at their tasks not only out of pure exuberance of good spirits and sound health but because there is something essentially rhythmical and harmonious in their toil the song of the sailor at the windlass is a song of fellowship an expression of the deepened consciousness of strength and exhilaration which come from standing together in a joint putting forth of strength when a man honestly gives himself to any kind of work he makes himself one with his fellows in the creative process he enters into deepest fellowship with the race and as in the intimacy of the family in its structure and habit there lies a very deep and rich educational process so in the community of work there lies a training and enrichment which go to the very centre of the individual life the ideal development involves harmonious adjustments of the man to the world through complete development of his personality and through complete unity with the race and the deepest and most fruitful living is denied those who fail of entire unfolding in either of these hemispheres which together make up the perfect whole in genuine culture solitude in society must both find place a man must secure the strength and poise which enable him to stand alone and he must also unite himself in hand mind and heart with his fellows in isolation the finer parts of nature wither in fellowship they bear noble fruitage to work in one's day with one's fellows to accept their fortune bear their burdens 
perform their tasks and accept their rewards to be one with them in the toil sorrow and joy of life is to put oneself in the way of the richest growth and the purest happiness chapter ten work and pessimism when perils thickened about him and the most courageous grew faint-hearted francis drake's favorite phrase was it matters not god hath many things in store for us no man ever wore a more dauntless face in the presence of danger than the great adventurer who destroyed the foundations of spanish power in this continent and whose smile always grew sweeter as the situation grew more desperate that smile carried the conviction of ultimate safety to a crew which was often on the verge of despair its serenity and confidence were contagious it conveyed the impression in the blackest hour that the leader knew some secret way of escape from encircling peril he knew as a rule no more than his men knew but his danger deepened his genius became energized to the utmost quickness of discernment and the utmost rapidity of action he had no time for despair he had only time for decision and action in his dying hour on a hostile sea half a hemisphere from home he arose dressed himself and called for his arms falling before the only foe to whom he ever yielded with the same dauntless courage which had made him the master of untraveled seas and the terror of a continent he so completely identified himself with the work he had in hand that he sapped the very sources of fear such heroic self-forgetfulness is not the exclusive possession of men of action it lies within the reach of any man who is strong enough to grasp it two writers of our time have nobly worn this jewel of courage in the eyes of the world john addington simons was for many years an invalid whose life hung on a thread he had youth gifts of a high order culture ambition but a desolating shadow blackened the landscape of his life he might have yielded to the lassitude which came with his disease he might have become embittered and poured his sorrows into the ear of the world as too many less burdened men and women have done in these recent decades instead of accepting these weak alternatives and wasting his brief years in useless complainings he plucked opportunity out of the very jaws of death found in the high alps the conditions most favorable for activity and poured his life out in work of such sustained interest and value that he laid the english reading peoples under lasting obligations in spite of his invalidism he achieved more than most men who live out the full period of life in complete possession of their powers in like manner disease touched robert louis stevenson in his early prime and would have daunted a spirit less gallant than his he bore himself in the presence of death as a dashing leader bears himself in the presence of an overwhelming foe he was intrepid but he was also wise he sought such alleviations as climates afforded a man in his condition and then gave himself to his work with a kind of passionate ardor as if he would pluck the very heart out of time and toil before the night fell neither of these men was blind to his condition neither was indifferent both loved life and both had their moments of revolt and depression but both found in work resource from despair and both made 
the world richer not only by the fruits of self-conquest but by the contagious power of heroic example such careers put to shame the self-centred egotistic morbid pessimism which has found so many voices in recent years that its cowardly outcries have almost drowned the great sane authoritative voices of the world despair has many sources but one of its chief sources is the attempt to put an incomplete in the place of a complete life and to substitute a partial for a full and rounded development the body keeps that physical unconsciousness which is the evidence of health only so long as every part of it is normally used and exercised when any set of organs is ignored and neglected some form of disorder begins and sooner or later physical self-consciousness in some part announces the appearance of disease in like manner intellectual and spiritual self-unconsciousness which is both the condition and the result of complete intellectual and spiritual health is preserved only so long as a man lives freely and naturally in and through all his activities expression of the whole nature through every faculty is essential to entire sanity of mind and spirit every violation of this fundamental law is followed by moral or spiritual disorder loss of balance decline of power to see the world with clear eyes as shakespeare saw it instead of seeing it through distorted vision as paul verlaine saw it one must think feel and act to compress one's vital power into any of these forms or channels of expression is to limit growth to destroy the balance and symmetry of development to lose clarity of vision and to invite that devastating disease of our time and of all times morbid self-consciousness the man who lives exclusively in thought becomes a theorist an indifferent observer or a cynic he who lives exclusively in feeling becomes a sentimentalist or a pessimist he who lives exclusively in action becomes a mere executive energy a pure objective force in society these types are found in all times and exhibit in a great variety of ways the perils of incomplete development in our time the chief peril for men of imagination and the artistic temperament comes from that aloofness of temper which separates its victim from its fellows isolates him in the very heart of society and turns his energy inward so that he preys upon himself the root of a great deal of that pessimism which has found expression in modern literature is found in inactivity he who contents himself with looking at life as a spectator sees its appalling contradictions and its baffling confusions and misses the steadying power of the common toil the comprehension through sympathy the slow but deep unfolding and education which comes from participation in the world's work he who approaches life only through his feelings is bruised hurt and finally exhausted by a strain of emotion unrelieved by thought and action no man is sound either in vision or in judgment who holds himself apart from the work of society participation in that work not only liberates the inward energy which preys upon itself if repressed it also through human fellowship brings warmth and love to the solitary spirit above all it so identifies the man with outward activities that his personal force finds free access to the world and he is delivered from the peril of self-consciousness 
he who cares supremely for some worthy activity and gives himself to it has no time to reflect on his own woes and no temptation to exaggerate his own claims he sees clearly that he is an undeveloped personality to whom the supreme opportunity comes in the guise of the discipline of work to forget oneself in heroic action as did drake or in heroic toil as did simons and stevenson is to make even disease contribute to health and mastery End of chapters nine and ten recording by greg giordano newport ritchie florida